Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Before AI can help your business predict demand, accelerate growth, inform decisions, automate tasks, reveal insights, generate content, you have to trust it. Introducing WatsonX Governance. Helping you govern any AI as data, models, and policies change so you can scale it responsibly. Let's create AI that begins with trust with WatsonX Governance. Learn more at ibm.com governance. IBM. Let's create. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Hey everyone. Today I am pleased to sit with Run the Jewels. They are a hip hop duo created by Killer Mike and LP. They have recently released their fourth record titled RTJ4. For the uninitiated, here's a preview of that album. The song is called Never Look Back. miles to the Algon Road. Never look back, never ever went slow. Never look back, heard him say that before. Never look back, never stare at a ghost. EK air when the summertime choke. Ain't shit fly but the drones, oh no. Low on the smokes, grab another pack, go. Pop smoke too, we'll play a piano. Pops, I'm you, it's funny how that go. Mom, you too, I never could drink slow. Never look back, heard him say that before. Sound like the type of advice I'd ignore. Funny how time feel on TikTok. You think a death speed to drop a clock shot. Never smoke sad. I heard that's a thought. Got 44 bucks on the smoke. What you got? Got my mind on a mission on the road to perdition. The crime in the grime, I admit it, I'm with it. Must suckle up crime for my mama, right titty. Cause if dollar made sense, no question. She was with it. She was queen pin and independent when I was a kid. Uncle Luke, don't stop. Get it, get it, magic city. Mommy told me never give a nigga my plug. Then she told me never give these bitches my love. Still to the day, bro, I'm missing my girl. Still to the day, I'm perfecting my thug. Daddy told me never give a honey my money. Had to ask daddy, did that include money? Made dollar, made cent, made money. Money, money, money. Got a white built like a Playboy bunny. Fucked up, but I kept her because I keep it 100. Made a meal that for real ain't a damn thing funny. In the last two months, you may have seen Mike deliver an impassioned speech 
uh, online. It was about the protests sparked by the killing of George Floyd. That news conference down in Atlanta has since gone viral. And indeed, the protests continued, often with Run the Jewels as a soundtrack to this movement. Their music being used in this moment, in the streets, is not a coincidence. At the heart of RTJ is a powerful political thrust, a call to arms to combat police brutality and institutionalize racism. This was true when the group began back in 2013 and remains true today. But that's not all they are. They aren't only political rappers. And that's where this conversation actually begins. Instead of having me tell you about who Mike and Jamie are, I figured I'd let them tell you themselves. So, without further ado, here are Run the Jewels. Jamie, Mike, thank you so much for being here doing a, uh, a quarantine podcast. Are you two holding up all right? Yeah, man, I'm all right. In and out of bouts of understandable uh, fucking morbidity every once in a while, <laughs> but, but <laughs> holding on, holding on. How about you? How, you? how are you holding up? I can't stick to one good feeling for more than 24 hours. Yeah, I feel you. Mike, how about you? I'm having a time of my fucking life. Like, <laughs> I, I love singing and dancing and rapping. I can't wait to get back to it. But, man, actually getting to be a husband and a dad and fucking do shit like help my art teacher garden and all that regular shit that I didn't do for years has been, like, pretty cool. I've, I've needed the mental pause of whatever this has been. I'm getting a little restless, but not in bad moods at all, to be honest. So Jamie and I are agitated. Mike's living his best life. <laughs> like Beyonce, baby. But with that said, I can I can honestly say my wife and charitable shit has turned up in my house. We've done a bunch of work. Like we gave away like 300, me and Bear Lope, who's a member of the team, we gave away like 300 um, food boxes last week. So I've had a lot of chances to do like that kind of cool shit has made me happier than like anything I've done just for me, but just being able to be a part of my actual community and shit, go to neighborhood meetings, just regular life shit is really what's been I'm happy about. I missed regular life a little. So I wanted to start this conversation with a clip that's not exactly from regular life. This is from three years ago. This is at the end of the tiny desk. And I wanted to watch this together. Oh, shit. The tiny desk. <laughs> the devil don't sleep us either. El spit fire, I spit ether. We the gladiators of the polls all season. Coming soon on a new world tour. Probably play the score for the world war. At the apocalypse, play the encore. Turn around, see L and a smile. Hell coming and we got about a mile. Until it's over, I remain hostile. Thank you, guys. <laughs> At some point in the future, they're going to try to label us a political rap group, and that we're not. We don't care what party you belong to. We don't care who you support it. We don't care what you're doing tomorrow politically. We care that socially every one of you know you're absolutely born free, and nothing has a right to interrupt that freedom. We love you. So obviously you want to talk about me drinking the ENJ. <laughs> Jamie, it's good that you really know what I'm interested in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What do you two make of that clip right now? 
we've held true to yeah. that. I don't think we've become politicized or a political group. I think that that temptation to be boxed in or labeled that is there by the greater um, journalistic community sometimes because it's easy. But I think that we do remind people you're born free and we do awesome brag rap in between that that and in that and within that. And I think it's woven. You know, I think that um, that where we are as free human beings, that's what we show you by showing you all, every piece of that humanity on a record. So to me, we're still far more of a social group. It's social experiment within a group, a bunch of different things before we're political because we're not married to any particular theory or dogma. And I do think your records uh, contain all sides, as you said, Mike, of being a person. And yet almost every piece about Run the Jewels has turned into what you predicted in that video, a political rap group making political records with a specific dogma. And so I've been wondering how you two may be resisting these labels in this moment. We're not stupid. We understand. And the stuff that we do talk about that speaks to the broader political moment that is connecting with people is important. And and people, you know, sort of zone in on that. And, and, and that's okay because we know that that connects with them and that maybe the other aspect of what we do isn't connecting as powerfully with those particular people who are interested in that aspect of what we're doing, you know? But, but I, I also think that me and Mike are like very aware that and just just know ourselves. Like you listen to our records, and you know, yeah, absolutely, there are things that connect to the socio-political sort of conversation that's happening right now. There's no denying that. There's no backing out of that. We wrote those things, and those things have resonated with people in a way. But you know, we also know that we're we're also just fucking dope rappers, and that we are just as much about making just badass rap jams as we are about saying things that you know, might resonate like that. So we're always looked at it like just two friends trying to make just great rap records. And then when those moments come that we talk about something that means something to us, we'll, we'll do it, you know, and we stand up and we speak it um, the way that we see fit. I don't think it's something you fight against either. I think you just do it. Like, you know, Ice Cube was my political rap. <laughs> you know, as much as Public Enemy and Ice T. When Ice Cube was hilarious. Yeah. Yeah, you listen to America's Most Wanted and it's funny. <laughs> like That Gangsta Fairy Tales record's fucking amazing where he has um, Flavor Flav doing the talk at the end. Like, yeah, like, so now nah, I, don't, I don't think we need to be anything but what we are. And I'm glad it resonates with people on a lot of different levels because you can be labeling us political right now and definitely our lyrics lend itself to, to the times. But with that said, you jam your ass off and dance, and when just come on, you know what I'm saying? And, and that record makes a gratuitous statement. So let's expand the conversation then to understanding how you two got to be who you are and where you are. Because when you start collaborating in 2011, 2012, you both had success as artists, but not to the degree either of you were satisfied by. So for Jamie, I know you had an independent label that you started that went on hiatus and you were producing... And Mike, also at this critical juncture, you have this phone call that I want to go to with a friend of yours named Robert Hicks. And in that moment, you, you were feeling down and out, like you could not move forward anymore. And Hicks, who had a career in the NFL, said, of all the people that had a chance to live their dreams, he said to you, you're the only one still doing it. 
So and let me just close the window. It's raining. It's That's why it's so dark in this room. I was wondering what it is. Over here. It's dark in this room because I'm living in a world of fucking pain and gloom, Mike. Okay, while you're living your best life, uh, man, I'm fucking right in after a this dark. Interview, I'm gonna go finish a verse and then go hang out with my daughter for pizza. <laughs> this is the same guy who cried on TV because I fucking ate a piece of fucking barbecue in front of him, but he's just going <laughs> to gloat. He's just going to constantly <laughs> gloat about his wonderful fucking pandemic life and shit. It's true. Well, we're not we're not all having fun out here, Mike, okay? A <laughs> little bit of empathy goes a long way, motherfucker. Absolutely, absolutely. Where were you two at emotionally and psychologically upon meeting each other? So... I think that when me and Mike met, we were both actually in a pretty good place. Like we were both sort of like, I think we have both individually kind of gone through all of those internal conversations about our careers and everything and kind of like looked at, stared down the barrel of like, well, what if this is it? What if I just peaked? What if this doesn't go anywhere else? What if my time in terms of being relevant or, or people really caring about my music is over? What if this is all? I think for me, I, I had kind of gone through that. That record label that you're talking about that I had for 10 years, Def Jux, um, had collapsed. I had lost all my money. And there was a period of darkness for a while there. I was feeling very much like rudderless. And I ended up kind of coming out of that and with the idea that... Um, Maybe that's true. Maybe 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 that is it. And yet, this is what I want to do. So fuck it. I'm gonna make some music. And I kind of I kind of was there when I met Mike. I was like I was sort of refreshed. Not not like I had any big plans, but more like I was I was just kind of ready to get busy. And I was freshly ready to like I, you know I was making my album Cancer for Cure with Fat Possum Records who kind of came in during a time when and sort of saved my ass because that, this is someone who was like, yeah, here's a fucking advance, uh, you know, to make a solo album. And all of a sudden it was like, well, I realized, oh, I don't have this record label anymore, but I also don't have the burden of that record label anymore and all the responsibility and all the stress that came with it. All I have is me and, and the music again. And that was exciting to me. And it started to dig me out of that hole. When I met Mike, I, I think I was... If I hadn't gone through that shit kind of right before I met Mike, I don't know if I would have been as open or receptive to even doing that with my, you know, to even producing his album. I was, I was still kind of, I, I think I still would have been at, in a low place. But I, I'm when I met Mike, I was open. For me, it was like the first time. I, I, I've been doing this shit since I was 16. So I found myself at like around 32 or something, 33, for the first time questioning it all. Like, oh, Maybe this won't work out. And I and I went through that and I was like, you know what? I don't really give a shit. <laughs> I just want to make music anyway. So fuck it. What you know, whatever happens, happens. When I had that conversation with Bobby, y'all understand, Bobby, this has been my man since kindergarten. We literally, his mom was a school secretary of our high school. I ate dinner at their house. I he'd be at football practice. I might be sleeping in his room. You know what I mean? Like that's how tight. This is my dog. So to give you some context, like Bobby got drafted 97, 98, played for the Buffalo Bills, Oakland Raiders, and uh, the Atlanta Falcons. A year ahead of us in our school group, Stanley Pritchard, whose mother was our teacher, he played for Miami. Cameron Dollar was like 1995 NCAA champion UCLA. Like all our, my, my friends, my friendship circles, even though they played different sports, did different things, everybody accomplished the childhood dream. So the fact that I had got a chance to live the dream and become a rapper, 
I was happy to have done it, but I was unsatisfied with if my career had ended, it would have ended as an attache piece to a bigger group's career, to, you know, to Outcast. And I never minded being associated with Outcast or Dungeon Family, but I knew the world hadn't had a chance to see me for who I was in the style of presentation that I wanted. And I got, I was down about it because I thought that I'd never get the full shot. You know, I knew I'd keep rapping, but I wasn't happy about the keep rapping option and not having my full shot to be understood in the way. And uh, coming out of the school of Ice Cube, I had never really found the sound either. And so Bobby gave me that speech after I gave him pretty much one of those. You ever see those two basketball players on the internet? One is Mr. Shot or something. He's walking with his head down. And a shorter player walks over to him and just literally lifts his head up and paps on the back. That's what happens, except Robert is a six-foot, eight-inch fucking giant and makes me look regular size. And he literally put his hand on back like, no, nah, big fella, we, we not quit. He was like, unlike the body, your, your mind doesn't break down. And you can keep doing this shit as long as you want to, big fella. Look at E-40. Look at Scarface. Man, shit was like a fucking Notre Dame movie speech. Like, it was just, after that, it was no <laughs> it was no quitting for me. So when I got up with Jamie, immediately, when I got in the room from the first three beats I heard, I just knew this is who I'm supposed to be making music with. I'm supposed to be rapping over his shit. It took some convincing, but not much. And, you know, here we go, almost 10 years removed. You have a lot of people right now listening you know, on the subject of dreams, I think they're looking at your career and they're like, well, okay, Jamie, you didn't finish high school and you started doing music at 16. You put all your eggs into that basket. You know, there was no plan B. And, and Mike, it's interesting because we were talking about how you were being a baby about the barbecue um, on that show. But the other episode is is one where you tell kids to stop dreaming. Where you say, like, forget being an astronaut, forget being president, let's think about being a carpenter, a handyman, and yet both of you went all in. My dad said to me, I said, Dad, I want to be an artist. He said, you know they call it starving artists for a reason. And so the first half of my career was just trying to prove my dad wrong. And not in a bad way, just like, I got to show the old man I got it. And I'll never forget him sending me a, a newspaper clipping of something I had done as a rapper that had nothing to do with rap, but that was more civic-minded. And he said, you know, I just wanted you to know this is always what I saw you as. It's not that I didn't believe in your talent. I'm just a working-class man, a blue-collar man from Atlanta whose dad died when he was 10. So my world of possibilities ended with responsibility structure and that type of stuff. And he said, I just didn't want the world to break your heart. He said, but you're a leader. And now that the world sees that, that's all I was really trying to tell you. After we cried on the phone, I needed that challenge because it fueled my fire. Me talking to those kids saying that, it was satirical. But with that said, you need to be told, no, you can't. And and, and I say that because I remember being a boy, we get sent to the fucking farm. Our cousins on the farm, they knew what the fuck they were doing. And they tell you, no, you can't. And it'd be a tease or a joke, but it, it, it got you to puff your chest out and try hard. Children need challenges. Everybody shouldn't get a participation trophy because they played on the team. As, as an MVP, you should be the MVP. So everyone's special, everyone's love, but I don't see a problem with being satirical, one, or actually challenging children because I've been challenged and I had to step up and show and prove. 
You know, I challenged my daughter, Michael, to play basketball this year before COVID hit. I didn't give a shit that she didn't like basketball. You draw well. You're an intelligent girl. But with that said, you got legs like an athlete. So let's get out here and play some basketball. I love the satire of it, but I also I, part of satire is that there is truth to it. And we are in this moment where, where everyone is like everyone is considering what their dream is. And so, Jamie, you know, given that your father was a musician, I want to know what's your take on dreaming at this point? I'm in therapy. And um, one of the things that I've realized about myself is that I fall into a category of people who had a certain type of childhood, a childhood of divorced parents or fucked up shit happening or, you know, kind of like running from your past and, and because the only control that you really have is your dream. You know, a lot of times when kids don't have control in their, in their younger life, I think that they turn out like, well, fuck that. I'm no longer interested in not having control. So whatever I have to do to have control, I'm going to do this. And I can't rely on the adults in the room to facilitate that. And I'm not interested either. So I think that dreaming is a form of survival. Um, you know, I think that dreaming for me was a path forward. And the times that I get really low in my life are the times when I can't figure out what that path forward is. I've always been able to really rely on my love for music. And that's the thing that I've had since I was a teenager. When you're jostled loose as a kid from the school system, that's a scary thing. And if you don't have something to, to fill it with, then, you know, I don't know what you do. I was lucky enough to have that transition be relatively easy because I, I'd already fallen in love with music. I was already determined to make something of myself in, in that regard. But I'm still dreaming. I'm still dreaming. For me, every record is the next dream, you know? For me, every moment of trying to make a jam is the next dream. Um, and still, to this day, when I feel rudderless or when I feel, uh, when I'm whipped into a dark place, it's because I can't focus on something like that. I think it's something that's like artists feel. We have this luxury and this amazing thing of having this gift in our life that we can chase. And it doesn't have to be a big dream. Like I said, the beautiful thing about art is that the creation of a, of a piece of work is a, is a dream unto itself. And it will fulfill you on that level. And the part that all artists can tell you about is why we all deal with some level of depression or mood swings is because... When we don't have that vision in our lives, then we start to get touched back on some of those earlier dark feelings of being lost or not, or not knowing. That's always been sort of my struggle. But I dream like a motherfucker constantly. I really do. And if I don't have what that looks like in my head, if I can't see what that looks like in my head, I'm spending my time trying to get there. When you both do decide to create something together, uh... Your first record comes out in 2013, but ahead of that record, someone asked you, Jamie, uh, in the press, what is your creative process like with Mike? And, and Mike, what is your process like with Jamie? You said, I usually work on the music ahead of time. I do a lot of pre-production. Then Mike would fly out. We'd get into the studio, go through the music, and then do psychedelic drugs, drink, and smoke way too much weed. <laughs> Mike did more freestyle. Where are you two at right now in that process? I, I will be honest, it hasn't changed that much. <laughs> yeah, the process has grown more intertwined <laughs> to me. Like now it's, it's, we have a rhythm for one another where if I stopped six bars in the past, it'd be like, let me figure out the other six for a 12 or eight. But 
My thing is, Jamie can hear a five bars out of me and said, I have the other 11 bars. You get what I'm saying? Like, it's that organic, the songwriting process together is damn near habit now. For me, it is anyway. To me, it's just wrong, more tight-knit. We didn't need as many mushrooms this go-round. <laughs> I think we're going to go back to mushrooms on the next one. I think we need some mushrooms. But that basis of the way that we work is is has essentially remained the same basis in the sense that, like, I do work on music, and then when I get together with Mike, I, I sort of lay it out on the table. And all the stuff that I'm laying out on the table is stuff that I've already thought was good enough to play that, like, if if he got inspired by something that I would be down to rock on. And and it's a multi-tiered process. I mean, it's multi-layers. It's like, you know, we get together, we kind of see what happens, what sparks something. We smoke a lot of weed, we hang out. Um, and whatever happens, happens. And then we kind of come back and we keep examining and keep going over it. And so this record, Run the Jewels 4, was the process of kind of meeting up going back home, meeting up, going back home. It was a layered process. And we tried to focus more on just on like, we had a batch of jams and we just really worked those jams. We just worked them until we could walk away from them and be like, they're right. We've never really been the kind of group to record 20 jams and then you whittle it down and put 10 on an album. It's it's not like that. We don't have mad shit in the vaults. Like sometimes we got a few verses here and there that are left over, but like, for the most part, we kind of know pretty quickly like what, what the songs are that we're going to focus on. And it's all just a matter of inspiration, but it comes in layers. I have to be inspired enough to make something dope enough for my partner to get high and want to rap. <laughs> you know, like that's basically it. And and we play off of each other. Run the Jewels really is that. So if, if we can't get together, then the album's not going to happen. It doesn't work without Mike for me and vice versa. It's like... I need to be in my partner's vibe in order to really make a Run the Jewels record. There are some musicians you hear like D'Angelo and he's like, I got 90 songs. Uh, yeah. I'm releasing eight of them. And all of us are sitting at home being like, could you release the other 82 though? Cause what he's not telling you is that 82 of them suck. Uh, D'Angelo, I did not <laughs> like say that. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm not talking about D'Angelo. That's just art. That's just art. Like, yo, we, like me and Mike, me and Mike come from a pre-internet era. So we worked on a thousand songs before you heard our first song. That's all I'm saying. Like by the time you finally heard a song by me at the age of 17, 18, that was on vinyl, that was getting play on radio, uh, underground radio stations. That's because for the previous 10 years I was making demos that sucked. And then I finally made a jam that was good. And you heard it, <laughs> you know, now it's like, it's just a different, it's a different thing, you know, and, and people who we're constantly making shit. I'm constantly making shit. I'm constantly making beats. I've, I've got 500 fucking beats that Mike will never hear because I won't bother. You know what I mean? It's like, they don't know. pass the test. They don't, they don't pass it. They don't pass it for me. So I can't bring it to my dude. Then again, every once in a while, our engineer, Leon will, will break the cardinal rule. He'll play Mike some shit in my, in my beat files that I wasn't gonna play Mike, and I'll come back in the studio and Mike will have dropped a verse on some shit that I thought was garbage, and then I'll, and then I'll have to re-listen to it and be like, oh, maybe it wasn't garbage, you know? Like, so I can't even say that I'm the best judge of it all the time. When it comes to the pure narrative of these songs, I heard one of you say that basically there's a macro and micro to the lyrics. And so in this context, Mike, tells the story of a single man in a story. Jamie, you describe the system in which that man lives. 
is that a fair characterization? I don't want to be unfair in that. I think it's fair for certain songs, for sure. That's like a method that we have used, for sure. It's it's like two organizers organizing. You have Washington people who are organizing on the ground in Washington that, are, that understand the political process of, and, and the, the way the systems work, and that's the macro. And then you have the local street organizer who understands how it impacts them immediately. And it, what's dope about our voices doing that is it brings in two audiences that have so much in common that musically might not have been together. You know what I'm saying? Like this is um, all the best that is, that is say um, East coast lyricism and, and Southern morality and lyricism. It is the best of goody mob and the best of company flow. This is the best of all those things counted together. So when we go macro and micro like that, I love it because when you hear him talk about the system of nationalism and Christianity and, and, and Christians tolerating children being put in cages and things of that nature, and then you have to come around and you have to hear me personalized by telling Christians, you know, Jesus was killed by the state, that it, it just, it's a one-two punch to me. You can't avoid, you have to deal with the morality of it all after that. So I like those type of raps that we did even on records like early, because whether you're trying to understand mm -hmm. it intellectually or get it, or it's aimed right at your heart, you can't escape the humanity and morality of it. You have to wrestle with it. You know what I mean? There's a zone that lends itself to our writing that we each have like kind of a, a different perspective in the way that we get at shit. And that has just proved to be kind of effective for us to be able to get at ideas and create this bigger picture of them um, because the other person's in the room, you know? Like, you know, I've done plenty of albums and said plenty of shit and discussed plenty of things, and it's always my perspective, and it's always fully my sort of the way that I choose to get at it. I can't get at it the way that Mike gets at it because Mike has his life and his perspective. So that's what Run the Jewels is for me. That's why I keep coming back to the well because there's something that I can't create without Mike. And vice versa. And vice versa. And it's and it's interesting and surprising to me. And it's actually more effective in a lot of ways, you know, like. Um, and we've taken that tap in different in a couple of different jams and, you know, like pulling the pin as I've described it as sort of like my verse is sort of almost like the camera starts outside of Earth. And by the time I'm at the end of the verse and you're zooming in and zooming in and you get to Mike and he's on his he's on, a, on the edge of a bed holding a gun. This is a. A kind of a cool just sort of byproduct of like our different writing styles and the way that we think about shit like I've always had a bit more of a uh, I don't know I, I tend to look at things with like a sort of a philosophical metaphorical view and Mike has always like had this really amazing ability to inhabit you know the mind of a person really in the shit both of those things are work to like the advantage of a song so I I, I really um I'm really glad that that's the case because otherwise we got to figure out, I got to figure out how to be on these jams. Mike's got to figure out how to be on these jams, you know, and that's the freedom that we give each other. It's like, look, if I'm starting some shit out, like pulling a pin and I'm writing a fucking basically dissertation on the existence of fucking evil, you know, and Mike is coming in and doing, you know, being Mike. And, and, and that's what's needed in that song because, you know, you can hear what I say and then Mike is bringing to it what I'm not inclined to bring to it. So I'm grateful for that. And uh, it makes it so that we can be partners. It makes it so that we can be, it's one thing if you're just talking shit, you know, it's one, like we're both good at talking shit. We can, <laughs> we can talk a lot of shit, but the fact that we found a way to talk about something that means something to us together, that's when that technique sometimes comes into play. So here were your philosophies 
in 2014 when your first record dropped? I'm going to read them back to you. Jamie, you said, personally, rap, uh, more so than shock, I think rap music has to be born out of rebellion. It has to because no one ever gave shit to rap music. Rap music deserves truth and it deserves spontaneity. For rap music to continue to live, it needs a burst of rebellion, and that can come in many different forms. And then Mike, you said, the only other thing I could say a good MC needs is the desire to remain dope. The greatest enemy of an MC isn't failure, it's success. Success relaxes you. You both are successful now. Have those ideas changed? Hell fucking no. I'm in the studio right now just to make sure I'm tuned up. I'm in here with a bunch of young motherfuckers in Atlanta just tuning up verses for them, just giving them shit. So, no, man, I want to be E-40. I want to be Scarface. I want to be Bun. I want to be Q. I want to be able to drop out of nowhere Cool J. Cool J could drop a record tomorrow and fuck up the radio. For me, that that's it. Like, all the other stuff matters. The social conditions matter the want to rebel, all that matters. But for me, man, the desire to be better than you was, that's another thing I really got from my friends who were athletes, like for Robert, you know what I'm saying? Like Cameron Dollar, like I remember being third grade, Cameron competing on the top field. We playing basketball. He competing like we were competing for a national championship then. You look years later, here he is winning one. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and you look at my friend Robert, he's like, hey, man, my knee robbed me of an opportunity to go the whole run. Your mind is good, so go. So for me, absolutely, my greatest motivator is to be doper than I was the last go run every time. Honestly, man, I, I think that's the only reason why we're still here. Like, you just happen to, like, two dudes who just never fucking looked up from the paper. We never looked up from the page. We never felt like we were there yet creatively. We never felt like we got what we came for yet. And so... I, you know, listen to Run the Jewels 4, I don't think that you're listening to two guys who have settled in anything. You know, we're, we're, we're clearly, not only is the rebellion there, but also just our personal quest to get better, to be better rappers, to be nastier, to be raw. I'm proud of us in that sense. Like, I don't think that there's too many people fucking around at our age that straight up that have kept as sharp as we have. I mean, there's a small elite crew of definitely that are in our category, but... It's it's rarefied air, and I don't think it's just because we're special. I think it's because we're we never stopped. We never like you know when 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 success happens and like and you're like forty, <laughs> like it's too late to get changed. Like it's too late. You can't change me. I, I, like if you would have given me a million dollars at twenty years old and gave me a, a gold record, you know, I I, I don't know if I would have been where I'm at right now, but. No one ever gave shit to me. No one ever gave shit to Mike. We always were just like, I'm fucking taking this shit. Time is standing still. It doesn't matter what the fuck happens. And again, we spoke about this like I really didn't have a plan B for me. I don't have the luxury of, of getting comfortable in art because art is the only fucking thing that I've ever had that has been consistent for me. I want to earn my place in it constantly. I'm, I always want to earn my spot being able to do what I love. And... I'm terrified of falling off. <laughs> not falling off like, oh, I I'm not successful like anymore. Whack. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's and, and you look at it and it's like it for the most part it seems inevitable. People just lose it. People just lose it. And I'm not I'm not willing to go there. I'm not willing to lose it, man. I'm just not gonna do it. I think neither of you have lost it for my money. So to bring this to the current moment, because there are people listening at home 
that are glued to their televisions, that are glued to social media, and they are in this moment of activism. And thinking about it with some context of your lives and your career, I keep going back to the night of November 25th, 2014, and you have a performance in St. Louis the night the news broke that offered uh, that Officer Darren Wilson would not be charged for the killing of Michael Brown and Ferguson. And in the walk-up to your show, you folks usually play Queens, We Are the Champions, but that show, given the gravity of what just happened, not that many miles from where you were, it started differently. Very grateful that everyone in this room is here. Yeah! I would like to say rest in peace to Michael Brown. Yeah. He will never get to see the next phase of his life. I would like to give all thoughts and prayers to the people who are out there peacefully protesting. And I also give thoughts and prayers for the people who could not hold that anger in because riots are only the language of the unheard. We usually come on to Queens um, champion. And I just gotta tell you today that man, no matter how much we do it, no matter how much we get shit together, shit comes along that kicks you on your ass and you don't feel like a champion. So tonight, I got kicked on my ass when I listened to that prosecutor. You motherfuckers got me that. I knew it was coming. I knew when the fucking Eric Holder decided to resign. I knew it wasn't going to be good, but I gotta tell him, you motherfuckers got me today. You kicked me on my ass today because I have a 20-year-old son and I have a 12-year-old son and I'm so afraid for them. When I stood in front of my wife and I hugged her and I cried like a baby, I said, these motherfuckers got me today. You motherfuckers will not own tomorrow. We will not live in your fear. We will not accept your pages. We're not gonna keep playing that race card because we know, we know you don't value my skin. And we know you do value his, but you know what? We're friends and nothing is gonna devalue that. Have you both thought back on that night in the last four or five weeks? I mean, I remember the whole night very vividly, you know? That was the first time that I felt, and not the last time, but the first time that I felt that me and Mike being pulled into and caught up into something that felt tangibly like we were being pulled into something bigger than us and that it was, it was almost like there was some mysticism almost about it for me. And I was with Mike and backstage and I was like, and everybody, the whole bus was watching this shit and everybody was tuned into this whole thing. And we, we knew and we felt the darkness and the dread of the whole thing before it even happened. And, and when it happened and there was a lot of emotion and, and I remember Mike and, and where he was and we were all feeling very emotional about it. I remember telling my friend, like, yo, you got to say some shit. You got to say some shit. Because I know that Mike was hurting. 
And but you know, I'll say I thought about it because it was the first time that I stood up on stage with my friend, and I looked at him, and it was a turning point for me with Run the Jewels because all of a sudden it went from this is something that we were doing that we didn't have any plan about, and that was just about fun and making dope records. All of a sudden, it went from that to feeling, really feeling it, that we are now, like it or not, in a fucking moment that may actually be important, that we seize this moment, that we are actually stand up in this moment because of the natural friendship that we have and because of the dynamic of the politics of it. And I know that we're standing up there together, black man and a white man, before previously never really having like publicly like really said anything about that, right? It was never really something we ever explained or really even elaborated on. And then all of a sudden, I remember feeling this almost a mystical moment of knowing and feeling like this is about to be, this is about to be important. This is now important. Now, whatever it was that we were doing, whatever we wanted it to be, it has been thrust upon us to potentially make that something bigger than it, we even expected it to be. That day meant a lot to me. I didn't want to go out on stage that day. My wife and Elle were the only two people backstage with me on the bus. It was just hard. And uh, I've been seeing black men killed by the state all my life. So I don't often think back to particular instances because then you have to think back to the person that, that died. But that night is always with me. I think Elle and I bonded even tighter that night. I think our friendship publicly served as a unifier in that time, at a time that a town needed it. I certainly needed my wife in that moment. I'm glad she was there. But um, I don't know. I think that the universe has a purpose for us. Um, and part of that purpose is making dope-ass music. And another part of that purpose seems to be a living, breathing example for the potential of friendship and relationships overcoming systemic barriers to that. And uh, I'm happy to be a part of it. I think of that night on the stage only because everything else about that night was too difficult and painful to think about. You know, Mike, as a kid, your grandmother marched with Martin Luther King. She was from Tuskegee, Alabama. And since, I think, 1980, when you were five years old, you've gone to the voting booth on Election Day. As a kid, you would stare up at her skirt, and then later, as you grew up, you stood over her shoulders voting. And I, I can't help but separate the past from the present for both of you. And I, I guess I want to know, as men and as musicians... What do you two feel is your purpose in this moment? I I really, I, I always say this to people laugh. I say, man, I really just want to make rap music and smoke weed and hang out in the booth. Like, <laughs> you know, the truth of the matter is I've been prepared to lead something. And I don't, I'm not saying an organization or movement. I'm not saying that I've been chosen to be a voice on the behalf of my community. And I don't mean in a grand and mystical way just by the universe, but I'm a legacy of Betty Klontz and Willie Sherwood, my grandparents. I'm a legacy of Alice Johnson and um, 
Walter Cleveland, Albert Love, and Reverend James Orange were the people who taught me to organize um, Edward Johnson, Black Teens for Advancement, the SCLC. There was an investment of community in me every step of the way, including but not limited to um, Black Atlanta's organizers. And um, I owe that experience the honor of stepping up when it is my time to do that. And um, I try my best to do that on a very daily basis in terms of doing shit like food giveaways with Crips last weekend. Shouts out to the Roller 60s in Atlanta, you know, that fed 300 families. And I owe it when my friend T.I. calls me to um, stand with him when speaking on the behalf of the community to the mayor and um, to the city. I don't have a choice. My publicist said to me once when I said something dumb on Twitter, you are a leader, whether you want to be or not now, that's what you are. And you can't be trolling and talking shit back to people who talk shit to you because you have a, a bigger purpose. Hmm. For me, I, I don't know, um, except to say that all I've ever done is try and make um, try and make music, try and make something that was honorable, try and stand up philosophically and intellectually for the world, for humans, for love, for try and get as good at my craft as I can because my craft allows me to communicate. And I always thought that artists had a very, they had responsibility, not a responsibility to be political, not a responsibility to be good, but a responsibility to take the gift of being able to focus on the thing that most people don't have the time to focus on, which is working on the eloquent translation of the human experience and existence as you see it. I look at art as almost useless unless you are fully dedicated. And your job is not to represent everyone. Your job is to represent yourself, but because we're all not so fucking different. If you are looking inward and getting good at translating that and getting good at saying something that whether or not it's it's symbolic or whether or not it's about imagery or whether or not it's about um, something literal, it can touch the human spirit. And I do look at art as my path to meaning. I do look at art as my contribution to the human spirit. And so I take it seriously and I'm trying to grow in it and I try and refine the way that I approach it. And those moments where I know that it matters, I try and lay it all bare because I learned a long time ago that when you... Um, expose yourself when you go there, when you fearlessly go there, the very ideas that you think maybe won't connect with anybody else because they're so internal, they're so much about you um, that how could anyone possibly connect with this, right? But those are the songs that people connect with. Those are the ideas that people connect with because we are, we are inadvertently speaking for the human consciousness and it's a big responsibility. And if you're not ready to take that seriously, then what is the fucking point? There's an element of it that's scary too. And the element of it is, I'm not sure I was ready for what I'm doing to be important. <laughs> I'm not sure that I'm ready for the responsibility of what I'm doing to be looked at as or or to be in a moment and reflected upon as as important. I don't know if I have what it takes to stand honorably in this moment and carry the weight of that. And I, and I don't know if you would look back on all of our art and be like, this meant something. But maybe if you have a career, 
Maybe there's a piece of art that you make that actually does change somebody's life. Maybe one jam. Maybe it's one fucking jam. And looking at your lives, you two are born within a month of each other in 1975. And in your respective childhoods, you two found music early. Like, Mike, you were dragged along with your grandparents to Pentecostal church where you had to go to these masses that were four to six hours. Yeah, <laughs> but the music was great. Oh, my God. I'm riding around right now listening to, to Reverend T.L. Barrett and his band. I've been riding through the west side of Atlanta on my way to a crip-owned studio jamming gospel music all day. <laughs> and, Jamie, you also found music early through your father, as a jazz musician, you know, even after your parents split, you would go with him to these restaurants and bars and venues where he'd perform. And you would sit in the back drinking a Shirley Temple, watching him intently as other people kind of went about their business and ordered dinner and had drinks. And it dawned on me that you both were children exposed to music early, sitting in the back watching it, and you didn't know exactly what you were watching, but you knew you liked it inherently. So when you look at all of this, do you feel like Run the Jewels was destined to happen? I felt like, honestly, Elle and I were destined to make music together since the first day. Like, you understand, I spent the first 11 years of my career looking for the sound that matched me. And I'd made some dope records on mixtapes. I made some dope records with bigger companies, but I hadn't, hadn't found me as a sound. And I found that with Jamie. But when we recorded this Run the Jewels as a group, not only had I found a sound, I had found where I was supposed to be. And I became the whole mic as one half of Run the Jewels. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um... I have to think that. I have to think that the same way that I have to think that it was destiny for me to get kicked out of two high schools. Because if I hadn't, despite how tumultuous it seemed at the time, it wouldn't have led to my, my career, right? It wouldn't have led to my life. It wouldn't have led to my wife. It wouldn't have led to my to any of it. So I, I kind of had that perspective early to, to be able to look at shit and be like, Upon further examination, if we had changed one little fucking thing, even if I wasn't comfortable with it at the moment, if I had changed that thing, then the other thing that it now has defined me and has become me would never have happened. So I have to look at Run the Jewels as, as a bit of a destiny thing because I know that me and Mike weren't looking for Run the Jewels. We did not actively seek out Run the Jewels. We didn't actively seek out each other, even though maybe we didn't realize we were. But I, I will say that also when you look at our histories and our past and you look at the fact that, like you said, we are one, born one month apart. Like we're from the same time, we're from the same, we're from the same world. And we never met each other until we were 35. And by the time we met each other, it was pretty instantly like, oh, like I know you, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like we kind of should have been friends. Like we should have known each other, but it would never have happened until we had to go through all of the shit that we went through. Everything that we went through, including the fucking dips and the, and the trials and the things that we went through in our personal lives that finally drove us to that weird position to be in where we finally linked up. Yeah, I call me romantic, but I kind of do think that that it was meant to happen. Um, and I know it was meant to happen because I can't get out of it. 
<laughs> everything, everything, you know, like it's just, it's too good. It's too, like the, you know, even when I want Mike to, even when I want to just be like, you know what, man, fuck you, man. And then I'm like, God damn it, this, I'm like, God damn it, this shit is dope though. <laughs> you know? And like, and that's what it comes back to. Like, you have to understand that at the end of the day, me and Mike are addicts. We're addicts for music. It's amazing to be a part of something where you could tangibly look at it and be like, it's high school all over again. It's like, yo, it was fucking annoying getting to this song, but if all this fuck shit didn't happen, then the song wouldn't happen. And I get to experience that almost every time we make music. And so, yeah, man, I do, I do. And I don't know what the future holds and, and I'm not so vain as to try and guide it too much, except to say, I'm really grateful that this has happened the way it has because I just recognize the beauty of it. And I think that that's why we keep making records is because we've been around long enough to fuck shit up. So by the time we got together and by the time we got to where we were and we started to realize that this was not just a side project, but it turned into the thing we never asked for, which was like, this is our art, then we just happened to have a little bit of experience under our belt to be like, hey, recognize it for what the fuck it is right now. Because <laughs> I don't want to look back on it and be like, that was great. I want to understand it now and I want to feel it now. And, and um, I don't know about all that Destiny shit, but I do know that I don't regret it. Well, the future is uncertain, yours and mine both. But uh, in this moment, I just want to say, I appreciate all that you guys have made and will continue to make. I would definitely like to say this is a better interview, Sam. Thank you so much. Anytime, Jamie and Mike. Thank you so much for doing this. Thanks, man. All right, peace. That's our show. Special thanks this week to Trevor DeBra and Joe Baker. I'd also like to thank Jamie and Mike for sitting with me. The latest Run the Jewels record, RTJ4, is out now wherever you listen to music. To learn more about them, visit our site at www.talkeasypod.com. On that site, if you'd like to listen to more episodes, I'd urge you to check out talks with Kamasi Washington, Mac DeMarco, Hassan Minaj, Malcolm Gladwell, and Brenton Wood. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TalkEasyPod. If you'd like to join our mailing list, drop me a line at TalkEasyPod at gmail.com. As always, this show would not be possible without our team. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Our associate producer is Nikki Spina. Our editors are Andre Lin, Kat Owen, and Eli Weiss. Our music is by Dylan Peck. Our social media is by Kiran Aftab. Our intern is Patrice Lee. Illustrations by Krishna Shenoy. Graphics by Ian Jones. And the show is produced by Caroline Reebok. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. Next Sunday is Fran Lebowitz. But for now, a song for the road. This is Pastor T.L. Barrett. I'm Sam Fracoso. I'll see you next week.
the tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. You know, I love music, but I haven't picked up an instrument in years. You know why? I tell myself, I don't have time. Where am I going to find a teacher? Well, there's an answer. Musora. Musora is the place where you can learn essential skills and techniques with more than a hundred of the world's best teachers and musicians and thousands of famous songs. You get seven days totally free to try it out, and then it's just $30 per month, less than a single private lesson. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. 